This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution, Sharealike, 4.0, International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number five, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about actual causation. Actual causation is not just an element of negligence. It is an issue in torts generally, including with strict liability, battery, trespass to land, Etc. So you will learn the concepts here in the context of negligence, but keep in mind that they are generally applicable throughout the landscape of tort law. You may find that actual causation is the simplest element to understand, and in many ways, it is also the easiest to prove at trial. In other cases, however, showing actual causation can be the most perplexing challenge the plaintiff will face. The requirement of actual causation is simply that there must be a cause and effect relationship between the defendant's conduct and the plaintiff's injury. The concept of breaching a duty of care is an almost endless jurisprudential puzzle. Actual causation, by contrast, is almost self-explanatory. When actual causation presents a live issue in a case, It is usually a factual matter rather than a legal one. That is, the issue is usually something to be resolved with evidence, witnesses, and logical thinking. So here is 95% of the law of actual causation. If the injury would not have occurred but for the defendant's breach of the duty of care, then actual causation is satisfied. If not, then not. That is called the but-for test. You simply ask, but for the defendant's breach of the duty of care, would the injury have occurred? There are two distinct concepts within the umbrella of causation in torts. One is actual causation. The other is proximate causation. Actual causation is a matter of strict logical cause-and-effect relationships. Proximate causation, where proximate means close, is a judgment call about how direct or attenuated the cause and effect relationship is, and whether it is close enough for liability. This example will help you see the difference. Suppose you drive a car carelessly and hit your neighbor's car. Your neighbor has seen the whole thing. You exit your car and say, my mother and father caused this to happen. Your neighbor asks what you are talking about. 
you answer that your mother and father caused you to exist. So they caused this to happen to your car. In such a case, it would be absolutely undeniably true that, as a strict matter of logic, of cause and effect, your mother and father caused the accident, and any lineal ancestor as far back as you want to go. But, of course, offering this as an explanation for what happened to the car is senseless. The tension here is the difference between actual causation and proximate causation. It could be said that your mother and father caused the accident in the sense of actual causation, but your mother and father did not cause the accident in the sense of proximate causation. In everyday non-legal English, when we use the word caused, we are talking about some combination of actual causation and proximate causation. Most of the time, there is no need to separate out the concepts. But when it comes to legal analysis in torts, we need to specify exactly what we are talking about, because, as you will see, the two concepts implicate entirely different sets of concerns. Actual causation is also called causation in fact, factual causation, and direct causation. The term causation in fact actually appears to be the most commonly used term, with actual causation being the second most common. Proximate causation is sometimes called legal causation. The most important conceptual aspect of the law of causation for you to understand is that an injury can have more than one actual cause. Do not think in terms of whether some action is the cause of an injury. Instead, ask whether the action is a cause. This applies both to actual causation and proximate causation. There is a tendency to want to find the factor or the person who is to blame. This is reflected in the question, who really is to blame? Clearly, many people think this way when considering issues of responsibility. Tort law, however, does not. In reality, there are a nearly limitless number of causes for every event. And every event may have a nearly limitless number of effects. Tort law recognizes this, and thus the actual causation doctrine only requires that there be a logical, actual cause and effect relationship between the alleged breach of the duty of care and the plaintiff's injury. If more than one breach of the duty of care was an actual cause of the plaintiff's injury, then the plaintiff can separately establish the element of actual causation as to each and every such breach, including against an unlimited number of defendants. Like all elements of the prima facie case, the element of actual causation must be proved by a preponderance of the evidence. That is, it must be shown that it was more likely than not that the injury would not have occurred but for the defendant's breach of the duty of care, where actual causation is an issue in the case. It is meeting this burden through the presentation of evidence to the jury that often poses the biggest challenge to the plaintiff. In situations where there are multiple necessary causes, that is, more than one action 
that had to occur in order for the plaintiff to be injured, then there is no need to look for an exception to but-for causation because all such actions satisfy the but-for test. Let's go back to the basic rule. If a plaintiff would not have suffered the complained of injury but for the negligent conduct of the defendant, then actual causation is satisfied. Stated in this positive form, the but-for rule has no exceptions. That is, it is true with no caveats that if a defendant is a but-for cause of the plaintiff's injury, then actual causation is satisfied. Everything else in actual causation law is directed at expanding the range of defendants who will be deemed an actual cause of the plaintiff's injuries. That is, in rare circumstances, the law sometimes will allow the actual causation requirement to be satisfied against a defendant who cannot, because of strict logic or a lack of proof, be found to be a but-for cause of the plaintiff's injury. So any and all defendants whose conduct is a but-for cause of the sued-upon injury has the actual causation element satisfied against them. No such defendant can point to any other defendant and say, that defendant is really to blame, so I should not be held liable. The situation where there is more than one but-for cause is sometimes called multiple necessary causes. We can state a rule for this situation as follows. Where multiple causes are necessary to produce the harm, then each such cause is an actual cause. You can regard this as a rule. It's reliably accurate. But in reality, calling it a rule is unnecessary. The only good that comes out of stating this as a rule is to dispel an instinctual misapprehension that, in the ordinary case, there is only one true cause of a plaintiff's harm. All you need to do is apply the but-for test. If the defendant is a but-for cause, then the actual causation element is met. Other defendants are simply irrelevant to the actual causation question. Now moving to multiple sufficient causes. Here we come to the first kind of case, in which actual causation can be established against a defendant despite the fact that the plaintiff would have suffered the injury even if the defendant had not acted negligently. That is, even where the defendant is not a but-for cause. The occasion is where there are multiple sufficient causes. That is, where there was more than one negligent act that is, breach of the duty of care, that would have caused the harm. The doctrine is best explained with an example that drove the doctrine's development, twin fires. In fact, the multiple sufficient cause doctrine might well be called the twin fires doctrine, since it is so closely associated with this particular circumstance. Defendant A negligently sets a fire that spreads through the countryside. Not far away, defendant B negligently sets a fire that spreads through the countryside. Soon, 
the A fire and the B fire merge. The merged fire proceeds along a path that leads to the plaintiff's property, burning it down. Neither defendant represents a but-for cause of the plaintiff's injuries. Why not? If we ask the but-for question, would the plaintiff have been uninjured but for the actions of A? No, the plaintiff would have been injured anyway, since the fire set by B was sufficient to cause A fire to move across the countryside to the plaintiff's property. That is, if A had been careful and not set any fire, the plaintiff's house still would have burned down. So A is not a but-for cause of the plaintiff's injuries. The exact same can be said of B. If B had been non-negligent and never set the fire, the plaintiff's property still would have burned since A's ignition of the countryside was sufficient to burn the path to the plaintiff. If but-for causation were the only way to establish the element of actual causation against the defendant, then in a twin fires case, the plaintiff would lose. So courts fashioned doctrine that allows actual causation to be satisfied even where the but-for test is not. We can state a rule for these situations like this, where each of multiple discrete events, not committed by the same actor, would have been sufficient each in itself to cause the harm, then each act is deemed an actual cause, despite not being a but-for cause. The final situation we will cover in which a court will allow actual causation to be established, notwithstanding a lack of but-for causation, is that of market share liability. This doctrine is applicable in situations where it is unknown who among multiple negligent actors caused the harm. But market share liability can be used where there is a large number of defendants and where those defendants are not quantitatively equal participants in the conduct that is alleged to have harmed the plaintiff. Just as the multiple sufficient cause doctrine is closely associated with the twin fires situation, the market share liability doctrine is closely associated with a particular set of facts. Cancer caused by DES a drug given to pregnant women primarily in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. It turns out that an expectant mother's ingestion of DES can cause changes in a female fetus that eventually manifest as adenosis and cancer when the female child reaches at least the age of 10 or 12 years old. Sometimes these problems do not manifest until adulthood. Many different drug companies manufactured DES, and because of the passage of time and the erosion of memory and destruction of records, it became impossible to determine who among them manufactured the particular tablets taken by any given plaintiff's mother. In the DES cases, multiple parties engaged in negligent or otherwise culpable conduct. It was impossible for the injured plaintiff to show but-for causation 
against any single defendant. Some drug companies manufactured a large portion of the DES sold, while others manufactured only a very small portion. There was also a very large number of manufacturers, upwards of 200, holding any one DES defendant responsible for all of plaintiff's damages seem unfair to courts, but so did not providing plaintiffs any path to recovery. The solution was market share liability, in which each defendant could be made liable for a portion of the defendant's damages corresponding to the defendant's share of the DES market. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.